this morning. So there we go. Haven't done that in a long time. Good. We'll finish the book now. So let's pray. We're into some pretty heavy material this morning. Are you ready for this? We're studying the Word of God this morning. Isn't that true? And my prayer has just been that I'll just be a conduit of the Holy Spirit, that you'll get an understanding of the text and that our lives will be shaped by God's Word because I believe that that's what transforms our lives. How many say, I'm ready? I want to receive it. I want God to speak into my innermost being. I want to hear what God wants to say to me. I want to be prepared for the end when I stand before Almighty God because we're all going to do that one day. And we want to be ready for that. Isn't that true? And so, Father, I pray this morning that you'll open our hearts. We'll have an open heart, a tender heart, a loving heart, a forgiving heart, a gracious heart. Father, I pray you'll give us an understanding heart. Lord, I ask this morning that as we hear these words, Lord, they will be a great source of encouragement to us. They'll also be a word of instruction, a word of warning. If we're not complying to your word, Father, we'll realize the severity of living fast and loose in this world, Father. And even though our society's changing dramatically and people are rebelling against you and there's no thought of you, and even in the church world, Lord, there's so many that are despising your word and they're a sense of lawlessness and a despising of, your, of the truths of your word, Father. Help us not to be like that. Give us a heart that's after you, Father. Give us a heart that is unlike Saul and more like David, Father. Give us a heart that says, I want to do your will, Lord. Help us to stand righteous in an unrighteous generation. Help us to be true to you in the hour in which we're living, Father. Help us to fulfill your purposes for each and every one of our lives, Lord. And may we be used way beyond what we could think or even imagine this morning. Father, I pray today for miracles to flow into our lives. For those that need healing, may it flow into their bodies. For those that need to be reconciled in relationships, I pray that that will begin to occur in their lives, Father. For those, Lord, who need provision, Lord, in their daily life, Father, be it healing or be it finances or be it emotional or mental, Lord, whatever the need is in our life, I pray for your presence to overwhelm us with your grace. And Father, I pray when we leave this place to know, may we know that we have experienced and encountered you, the true and the living God, and may this be a defining moment in many of our lives, and may this be a place where we remember the truths of your word, because Father, you say to us, when you send your word, you have a reason for sending it, and that you will accomplish your purpose in it. So give us the kind of hearts that when the seeds of your word fall into it, they will produce fruit. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We're going to turn in our Bibles this morning to Revelation and chapter 14, beginning in verse 14. That's where I left off. Now, I'm going to show you all kinds of PowerPoints this morning, but you want to have the book of Revelation in front of you. So let's turn to Revelation 14 and verse 14. How many realize that if there is no judgment... The idea of justice is actually a sham. If you think about that. I want you to think about the millions of people who leaders like Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, and many other tyrants over the ages have violated, abused, and destroyed people's lives. And if there was no judgment, life would be a sham. But you know, so often when we think about that, we think of the inequalities, racial inequalities, gender inequalities, ethnic discrimination, and so many other things that people face. Or consider the people who abuse their leadership roles to those who are beneath them, and they misuse those roles 
and they violate and misuse people. We don't have to venture very far to find injustice. That's found even in our judicial system. You know, I'll tell you this right now. You can, you know, be practicing law in our nation, but that does not mean that people get justice. That just means we have law. Injustice is all around us. We see it all the time. And yet there are many who think that they will never answer for their behavior. Because they've been getting away with it for so long. And the scriptures even tell us that there are some people whose sins are exposed in this lifetime. And there are other people whose sins are never exposed until that day when they stand before Almighty God. Psalm 10 verse 13 says, Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account? And you know why people say that? Because judgment is not easily or quickly executed. People think there's no judgment coming. People think because they're getting away with it, it just means that they'll continuously get away with it. But the Bible clearly shows us that God will uh, bring people to an account. I'm going to turn a little further in the book of Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, and it says, And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Isn't that interesting? Two books. Book of life, that's the name. We want to have our names in the book of life. And then there's another book that people whose names are not in the book of life, their name is in that book. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the dead and Hades, which is another name for hell, gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Wow. That's strong stuff. In his book, Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, Leon Morris argues that the wrath of God, which is a term we find in the Scriptures, by the way. I'm not just throwing this stuff out. It's there. But what does it mean for God to be angry? What, how much do we really understand this concept? Well, you know, it says this, that God's wrath is God's strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very nature. God's nature is opposed to evil. God is intolerant towards evil. He goes on to say God's wrath is a burning zeal for the right coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. That's the nature of God. It's powerful. A central, peop, a central feature of people living in an agricultural society. You know what the focus of living as a farmer is? Harvest. I mean, everything about life is centered around harvest. We don't think that way because for the most of us, we're not involved in the farming industry. But how many say you'd get, your attention would be grasped real soon if we had a tremendous famine and there was no food? Then all of a sudden, all the rest of the stuff we're doing wouldn't make a lot of sense, would it? So here they are in this agrarian society, and the focal point is the harvest. And in harvest time, I mean, everything is depending on it. Life is depending on it. Now, all of the activities build towards this one event, the harvest. You break up the ground. You put the seed in the ground. You either irrigate or you pray like crazy, right? And the crops grow up, and you hope that they're not damaged by hail and all kinds of other problems, grasshoppers, mildew, whatever it is. And then one day you have the harvest. And that's the greatest moment when you're harvesting. And then there's great joy in the harvest. 
You know, one of the Bible encyclopedias states this, barley harvest in the nation of Israel began in mid-April along the Jordan River and about a month later in the higher regions. You know, the geography of Israel is such that there's low points and high points. Two weeks later, the wheat harvest begins and it lasts seven weeks long. Summer fruits such as figs and grapes are harvested later on in the summer, towards the end of summer. And then you have what we'd call the fruit harvest. What we're learning is that the harvest of grain comes first in the year and then later on as the summer comes to a close, the nation begins to harvest their fruit. Now, what's really fascinating to me is a lot of the festivals in the nation of Israel were centered around harvest. You have the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. We just celebrated that last week. The Feast of Weeks. Seven weeks. Isn't that interesting? Go back. Look. You know, uh, seven weeks of harvesting grain. And then there's the celebration sometime in May or June where they, they celebrate the harvest of the wheat. That's what we celebrated. And then later on, there's the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a week-long celebration that happens in September, October, which marks the end of the harvest of figs and grapes. Now, they have two harvest seasons. We have one, but they have two. Now, Jesus uses the imagery of harvest to speak a metaphor. And you know what? I found fascinating. I opened up my concordance, an exhaustive one, looked up the word harvest, and I was surprised at how few scriptures were actually related to the harvest. I thought there'd be a lot more, but there wasn't. But when Jesus is talking about the harvest, he says this in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now Jesus here is not talking about grain nor fruit, is he? It's a metaphor. Look what he says. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus is actually talking about people. People are what Jesus wants to harvest. Now, how many know that when you get to the harvest and you end the harvest and you have a bountiful harvest, what's the natural expression of human beings when they've been blessed? They're thankful. And so in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 3, it says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. You know, as Canadians, we practice this. We have Thanksgiving. And when is Thanksgiving in Canada? It's in the fall. And why do we celebrate it in the fall? Because it follows after the harvest. And we're thankful for God's provisions in our lives. And that was created in a time when our country was primarily an agricultural-based economy. And yet, the primary imagery of harvest, we've looked at it, we're not just talking about grain and fruit, Jesus talks about people, but when the Bible talks about harvest from the Old Testament, he's actually talking about a day of God's judgment. And take a look at what Joel says. Now, last week, Joel talked about, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. We talked about that last week. But then he goes on in chapter 3 to says, Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Now, who's the judge? God is. 
And he says, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. So now God is using an analogy here. We need to understand that. He's giving us a picture. Just like in the olden times they would put grapes into a huge vat. How did people, you know, create wine? Well, they jump into the vat barefooted, right? And they'd start stomping on the grapes. And they still do that today. And then eventually it runs into another vat. The fluid does. And that's the, you know, where we get grape juice from. And then eventually if you let the grape juice ferment, you have wine. That's basically the process. And here it says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. So how many already begin to see that God says, I'm going to judge the world, but my people, it's a time of finding refuge. So we need to understand something. The day of judgment is both a day of terror, a day of accountability, but it's also a day of salvation. We're going to see that. There's two things happening at one time. As a matter of fact, judgment and salvation go together. Apart from God's judgment, there can be no salvation. So let's take a look at this this picture now that I think Joel is quoting. Revelation, you know, so often in the New Testament, what we have is an explanation of the Old Testament. Now in the book of Revelation, we're picking up the story. Revelation 14.14. Let's take a look at these few verses. We're only going to look at seven verses this morning. Verse 14. I looked and there before me was a great white, uh, sorry, a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. How many know a sickle is an instrument that they used to harvest in ancient times? It was the cutting instrument. It was what took the grain down, okay? Or the sickle also in the Greek language can also be uh, used as like a pruning hook, a a pruning shear. It says, so he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vines, because the grapes are ripe." Now, how many know that you don't harvest until until things ripen? Isn't that true? You just let it continue to develop and grow. You just let this thing continue on, and when it's ready, then you harvest. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. We're getting an understanding now. If you're introducing God's wrath onto these uh, harvests, you got some judgment coming here. Then it says they were trampled in the winepress outside the city. How many know that Jesus died outside the city? Because that's a place of judgment, outside the city. And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stata. I'll explain some of these concepts here. So now we're looking at God's ultimate moment in history where judgment is now going to fall on all of humanity where evil will ultimately be addressed. You know, a lot of times in life, things aren't fair. How many have experienced that? 
unfair. God's going to address all inequity at that point, all inequality at that point, all injustice at that point. Now, Klein Snodgrass uh, is a New Testament scholar, and he's written a good book on the parables. And he begins to explain one of the parables that I think ties into the story we're reading this morning. It's the parable about the weeds. And he says, our society... Uh, wishes to ignore judgment. Isn't that true? Nobody wants to talk about this. As a matter of fact, you know, think about the last time you heard a sermon on judgment. It's not too often, right? We don't talk about this. And yet, if you read the Bible, if you're a daily Bible reader, how many notice you just keep running into this idea? It's just everywhere in the Bible. He says, but it's a central feature, actually, of Jesus' teaching. So when people say, well, Jesus doesn't talk about this stuff, You're wrong. He does talk about it. How judgment should be understood in actual terms needs to have careful discussion for the intent. And then he uses two big words of the metaphorical and apocalyptic language of Scripture. In other words, he's saying part of the problem we're looking at the judgment of God is that often judgment is used, you know, like especially harvest is used as a metaphor for judgment. And then he's talking about this word apocalyptic. Now, earlier in my series... I explained that this is part of a literary genre. And apocalyptic is language that is used by people who are trying to say something without saying something. What do you mean? Well, they're an oppressed group of people who don't want to say clearly because the people over top of them are going to do damage to them. So they they clothe this information in fantastic images. And when you're reading John's Revelation, there's all these images going on. But they all have significance and meaning. He says, which is often quite different from the assumption of popular Christianity. Because I think so often when, we're, when we hear about certain things in the Bible, we just simplify things and we say, well, this is what it really is all about. But I think it's a little more significant than that. And that's what I'm trying to unpack this morning. Okay, so he goes on to say, still, judgment is the essential aspect of Jesus' agenda for the restoration of Israel And in his understanding of human responsibility, he says, without judgment, there is no need for salvation. In other words, you know what? If you don't believe in judgment, you don't need even to believe in salvation because nothing bad's going to happen to you anyways. You see, salvation, the fact that Jesus died, why did he die? He died because we need to be saved from something. We need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from death. We need to be saved from judgment. That's what we need to be saved from. That's why Christ came. You know, we are, how many know that you and I are incapable of judging rightly? When somebody hurts us, you know, we think we want justice. But the reality is most people want revenge. And most of us don't know the human heart, and we don't know the intent of the heart, and we don't know exactly what was going on. And so when we judge back, we don't judge fairly. Isn't that true? And that's why society creates a, a societal structure that judgment is rendered outside of the people that have been hurt so that people can take the emotion out of it and can judge a little bit more objectively. So this is not a sermon against judicial you know, judgment. I think that that's needed. But what we need to understand is, as human beings, we're not capable of judging correctly. And that's what we're going to learn in one of these parables, that Jesus says, I'm going to leave the judgment to God and his angels. Interesting. So we don't have to address those things in our lives. 
It is only as we fully understand and appreciate that all evil and injustice will be judged that we can appreciate that we will be judged. And therefore what Christ did by suffering on our behalf, all of a sudden this becomes far more important. We're going to look at a text here in Revelation, and we're going to learn some things. We're going to understand from what John has been shown You know, the ultimate reality of judgment described both in a metaphorical and in apocalyptic language. And so I want to look at just two things today. You know, well, here's the scripture verse I was reading this week when I was thinking about this message. It says, do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. Isn't that amazing? There's not one person in this room who could walk up before God and say, I'm blameless. It's not going to fly. It's not going to work because all of us know we've messed up at some point in our life. Well, the first thing we learn from this text is that judgment will come. You can be assured of this. You know, just like one day you were born, just like one day you grew up, just like one day, you know, you age, one day you're going to die if Jesus doesn't come back and you're going to stand before God. We can anticipate that. The day will come. We need to remember that the first Christians who received John's revelation were deeply encouraged by this message. You go, why? Because they were suffering. They were being persecuted. They were being martyred. They were being told, listen, God will punish those who are unjustly treating you. You know, some of you know who Dr. Thomas is. He comes here annually, right? You know, since he's been here at the end of April, he texted me or emailed me a picture and told me the story that one of the pastors, one of the younger pastors in his fellowship, who he said, you taught, because, you know, I go there, I'm teaching there so often, he, he showed a picture of some class people, he circled the picture, and he said, this person was martyred. That's just th- within the last three weeks, you know? And what they did is they captured this person, they shot him, beheaded him, threw him back in his vehicle and burned his vehicle. And they know that nothing will be done about it. Now how many know that when that starts happening, you start, you know, how many say, you know, isn't there no protection? Look the other way. They're looking the other way. Nothing's going to happen. You see, there is persecution happening in our world right now. Our world is not fair. But I want to just tell you that there will be a day when people stand before Almighty God because of what people are doing today. There will be an accounting before Almighty God. We need to know that. It says here in verse 15, it says, Then another angel came out of temple and called in a loud voice to him was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. What we need to understand right now is this world in God's mind, in a metaphorical sense, this world is like a big harvest field, all the people on it, and it's ripening until a moment where God's going to judge everybody. And that's an inevitable experience. We're all going to stand before Almighty God. We've read that already in uh, Revelation 20. So often we wonder, when will evil be punished? When will we get justice? When will injustices be addressed? The text answers the cry of those suffering 
who we find earlier in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 6, verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they had called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, how holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Do you realize today that thousands of people who have died prematurely in life just because they were Christians. Do you know that? And it's going to shock you. It's a lot more than you realize. Thousands are dying every year because they're believers. See, we're just a little disconnected sometimes in North America, what's really happening. Start traveling and you're going to learn a whole bunch you know, I think of, you know, the, the mothers. This is such amazing to me. In Egypt, we have Coptic Christians, right? And ISIS captured some young people in a small town in Egypt, and they beheaded these young men. How many remember that? Remember that? Just happened not too long ago. And they went to the families, and they said, what do you think about this? And you know what they said? We are so thankful that our young people would not renounce their faith. These are the moms saying this. We rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for their Savior. Those people sound more like the New Testament. You see, we are a little disengaged in North America. We are so disconnected from what's really going on in the spiritual realm because what happens is we're consumed by this material world we're living in and it all becomes about me and my stuff and what's going to happen in my life and it's, I'm here to live a great life. If it doesn't work out the way I think it is, I'm all bummed out. I'm going, listen, God has an agenda, folks. God is trying to, you know, complete his purposes and will. God is trying to win as many people as he possibly can. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's a major harvest field out there, and people are perishing. And you say, well, some of them just seem to be disinterested in spiritual things. Maybe it's because we've never talked to them. Maybe we're making a lot of assumptions about people. Maybe we need to relook at our own community and say, you know, the majority of people in this region are lost and they're perishing and they will stand before Almighty God and many of them have never really understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what are we doing about it? It should motivate us. Here in our text, we see evil being addressed. Look at verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I don't really like this verse. You say, why, Pastor? Because it means more people are going to die before Christ comes back because of their faith. Interesting. Throughout the Bible, we see warnings about coming judgment. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We have to remember when Israel was experiencing, what they were experiencing at the Red Sea, they received salvation at the Red Sea. They received deliverance at the Red Sea. But that was also a place of judgment for the Egyptians. They perished at the Red Sea. Isn't that true? 
they were judged. The Apostle Paul, in speaking about God's great plan to the, to the Romans, wrote about resisting what happens when we, we, we step away from God's grace. The issue is always the condition of the heart. For those who are stubborn, resistant, rebellious, and unrepentant, listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2. He says, but because of your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. As a matter of fact, in Galatians, it says God's not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that they're going to also reap. Isn't that true? Of course it is. You know, that, that's both positive and negative. If I sow to sin, I'm going to reap to death and destruction in my life. But if I sow to righteousness and I'm doing God's will, I'm going to receive blessing, honor. Isn't that true? Yeah, of course. goes the other way too. We see Paul personally communicating this message. He's not just preaching and writing letters about it. Here's Paul. He's in jail. Felix, the governor, comes to talk to him. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 24, verse 25. He says, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, and who was, she was a Jewish lady. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and what? And the judgment to come. Now, I'm going to tell you, Paul must have been quite persuasive because Felix was afraid. It shook him up. At least got him thinking, right? He said, that's enough for now. Thank you very much. (laughs) I don't want to hear any more right now. That's a little too intense for me, right, Paul? And then it says, when I find it convenient, I'll send for you. I find that fascinating. He kind of dismissed the method, though it did haunt him. Actually, Felix was more concerned about the present life than he was about the life to come. And you say, how do you know that? Because at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so so he'd send for him frequently and talk with him. And Felix had no concern about justice. All he wanted was money. He just wanted to take advantage of the situation. Paul was an innocent person, and he knew it. He wouldn't release him. And what's even amazing was that Felix, the people pleaser, decided to leave Paul incarcerated. We read in the next verse, when two years had passed, Felix was now succeeded Porcius uh, Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to all the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Is that justice? No. But how many know that doesn't bode well for Felix one day when he stands before Almighty God? Here in our text in Revelation 14, justice is finally being addressed by God. Judgment is being executed. We see two harvests, the grain harvest, the fruit harvest. He says it. You know, some would argue, well, the grain harvest is the harvesting of the righteous. But I, I just don't... You know what? Sometimes we try to get too picky in things. I think the overall picture in these seven verses is God is harvesting at the end of the age and will bring all people into judgment. That's what he's talking about. It's real simple. I'm going to keep it simple, right? Let me move on to the second thing. The only other point I have is that 
the ultimate judgment will become, it will ultimately be consumed at the end of the age, consummated at the end of the age. This will be the end of it. God is moving everything towards this day of ultimate judgment. We don't think that way, do we? we? I don't know what you think, but, you know, I keep thinking to myself, you know, at the end of my life, you know, I have to give an account for my life before God. You know, the way I treated people. Did I do God's will or my will? You know, that kind of stuff. You know, at the end of, the li- at the end of your life, do you think it matters how much you acquired? Not really. It's the kind of life you led while you were living on earth. And every day, the way you treat each other and the way I treat people, that's the most important thing. That's what God is evaluating. God is, you know, basically, like he said to Peter, he allows tests to come into our lives. He will even sift our hearts. See, judgment is seen as the final answer for suffering saints. Leon Morris points out that the altar and the fire earlier in the book is associated with the prayers of the saints. Remember it said here, still another angel who had charge of the fire over of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth vine because the grapes are ripe. Now, it's interesting. This is the angel at the altar. What's going on at the altar? Well, let's go back to earlier in the book of Revelation. Chapter 8, verse 3. Another angel who had golden censer came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer with the saints, with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke on the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God in the angel's hand. So, there's an altar, there's incense rising, and inside of the incense rising, because think about it, this is a, an Old Testament picture. If you went to the tabernacle, you went to the temple, what you'd find is an altar of incense, and every day it was burning, incense was rising. But really it's a picture of what's really rising before God, and it's the prayers of the saints. Our prayers are like incense ascending before God. And God is smelling this. God is, this is what, you know, our, our petitions are a sacrifice unto God. Our praises are a sacrifice unto God. The way we live our lives are a sacrifice unto God. And it says here, Then the angel took the censer and he filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumbling flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, that, that's pretty powerful imagery, isn't it? What he's basically saying is, listen, folks, if you think your prayers don't matter, let me tell you something. They're going up to heaven, and when God answers them, they're coming down big time. They're coming down with this vivid imagery. How many have been in a severe thunderstorm? How many say it's a little terrifying? You ever, how many have ever been terrified in a major thunderstorm? Yeah, I have. I mean, it's like, you know, when you see the lightning flashes, you know, the earth is rumbling. How many have ever been in an earthquake? That's pretty terrifying, where you feel like, you know, you, can't, you have no place to stand. This is the power of prayer. If we only understood how powerful prayer is, we'd pray more. They're praying, and God is answering, and God is answering in a powerful way. This is the image that John has been given of, of prayer. Do you know when you and I are crying out with tears in our eyes and saying, God, why is this person doing this to me? God is listening to that prayer and he's storing that stuff up. 
I mean, it's, it's a terrifying, it, you know, it says, you know, to be, it's a dreadful thing to be in the presence of the living God. See, a lot of Christians are walking around going, yeah, my buddy Jesus. Let me tell you something. When you see Jesus high and lifted up, you won't be doing the buddy-buddy thing. I don't think so. You and I will be terrified. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? John was Jesus' closest friend on earth when he was in the flesh. But when John saw Jesus in the book of Revelation, he felt as if he were dead. You're getting a picture? How many are getting a picture? This will be a little overwhelming to us. It's going to be a little overwhelming. So, you know all these people that are arrogantly walking around doing things, ripping off people, carrying on as if there's no problem. Can you imagine standing in front of this awesome, holy, pure God who knows all the secrets? He knows the intent of the human heart. You're going to know that in that moment. He knows everything. There's no place to flee from God's presence. That's the picture that we're getting from the book of Revelation. Not only is the judgment the final aspect of what God is doing in addressing all wrongs on humanity, but I want to point out it's eternal in nature. This is an eternal situation. You know, the book of Hebrews, it gives us the six basic doctrines of Christ. He says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again. So now he's going to lay down what the foundations are. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Step number one. The first thing we have to do if we're going to be in a right relationship with God is turn away from sin. You know, a lot of people don't preach this, but repentance comes first. We have to turn from our sins. There has to be a conviction that what I'm doing is wrong, and I hate it, and I don't want to do it anymore, and I turn my face from it. It's a 180. I turn away from sin. And then I find faith in God. I find my consolation, my forgiveness, my comfort from God. And then it goes on, instructions about cleansing rites or baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and and eternal judgment. Now, how in the world have we ever gotten away from that? Well, we don't want to hear about fire and brimstone anymore, Pastor. That's the problem. That's why Christians are sinning like crazy. They don't, there's no fear of God in their hearts anymore. They don't realize there's a judgment to be feared. God's going to have us stand before him. Well, well, Jesus forgave me. You know something? We get really a little bit crass and callous about sin. That's a problem. Very problematic. In our text in Revelation, we have the end result of the harvest, which is the ingathering of the crop. And Jesus talks about this in a number of parables. In Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the weed, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seeds in his field. And while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and he went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weed also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, don't you, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did these weeds all come from? In other words, even though there's always weeds in fields, this is an unusual amount of weeds. An enemy did this, he said. The servant said, do you want us to go up and pull them out? He said, no, because while you're pulling the weeds, you might uproot the wheat with them. In other words, you don't know what you're pulling. Let them both grow together until the harvest, and at that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and then tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. 
Now, this is interesting. There's very few parables that Jesus interprets, but the disciples came and go, what is this all about, Jesus? And then we read, and then he left the crowd. He went into the house. His disciples came and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom, and the weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. See, that's where I'm getting this imagery from. See, Jesus said the harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are what? They're the angels. And what have we been reading in Revelation? These angels are coming and harvesting. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. That's pretty straightforward. I'm not saying this stuff. Jesus is saying this. Do we pay attention to what Jesus is trying to tell us? We've got to learn from what he's saying. It's important. Klein Snodgrass points out that this parable is not about the mixed character of the church, but about the fact that the righteous and sinners are coexisting in our world today, even though the kingdom of heaven is currently present. And he's really answering an interesting question. If the kingdom of heaven has come, why is there evil still present? In other words, if God's kingdom has come, why do we still deal with evil? God will ultimately address all evil at the end of the sage. The parable conveys that judgment belongs to God and his angels and not to humans. God's going to do this and his angels. This challenges us to lay aside getting even or exercising vengeance. Because everyone in this room, you're going to be offended and hurt and taken advantage of in some way, sometime during this lifetime. And we have a choice. We either let evil overcome us and we render evil back, or you and I decide to make a very interesting decision say, Father, just like Jesus did, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And I don't want to be trapped in the, the, the prison house of unforgiveness. I want to be free. And it's a decision we have to make. And I'll tell you what, right now, right now, right in this room, there are people battling with unforgiveness. And there are people that have hurt you, and they've hurt you more than once. And Jesus, you know, Peter said, how many times do we have to forgive these people? (laughs) Seven seven times? What did Jesus say? Seventy times seven. Well, you know, Lord, I've already forgiven this person 490 times. The next time this happens, that's it. No, I don't think he's telling us to keep score. I think what he's trying to give us is this idea that you and I have to have a forgiving spirit. Right? And you know the hardest people to forgive are the people that are the closest to you. That's sin daily in your life, and you just got to keep forgiving them. Lord, forgive them. Lord, forgive them. I love them. i got to keep loving them, forgiving them. And to live like that, how important is it, right? Here we are speaking in reference to individuals taking matters into their own hands, not to a social, legal, judicial system. In other words, that's fine. We need a social system. But what we need to understand, and this is more powerful, is the natural consequences of sin. You know what the natural consequence of sin is? There's a cause and effect. You sin, something happens. You say, what happens? I get cut off from God. God is the author of life, so immediately I sin, I'm in a state of death. Just like that. It's so fast. I mean, boom, we're cut off from life. That's the problem. Sin is like short-circuiting an electric current. You've got to repair that thing. Isn't that true? You say, Lord, forgive me. Now, I, 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 don't, I, I think that what happens during our lives, every single day, we're sinning. We don't even know it half the time. 
Thank God when you're a child of God, the Bible says, and the blood of Jesus Christ covers you from sin. It's just a continuous cleansing all the time. But then the Holy Spirit says, hey, you know what you said the other day to that person? That was wrong. Oh, that's right. Lord, forgive me. Maybe I need to go talk to that person and ask for forgiveness because I recognize when I saw their face, it hurt them. I need to straighten that out. The Apostle Paul says that when people reject God and engage in the life of sin, God gives them over to, their, to the natural results of what they have chosen. Have you read chapter 1 of the book of Romans? God says, I just give them over. You know, our culture right now is being given over to their sin. And I tell you what's happening right now. Our culture is beginning to rot. And it's going to keep rotting. And the only thing that can save our culture is not some, you know, medical breakthrough. As much as I appreciate medicine, that's not what's going to save them. It's not, what's not going to save them is saying everybody's okay to continue on sinning, and that's normal. What our culture is basically saying is it's normal to sin. But I'm saying, yeah, that may be true it's normal to sin, but it's not healthy. It doesn't bring wholeness. It just leaves people broken. And more messed up all the time. And we're living in a messed up condition. That's what's happening. Thus God's anger is not peevish or spiteful. It is the unavoidable response of a righteous God to the spoiling of this world. I'm quoting Paul Spellsbury. He says this. In fact, it helps us understand why Jesus had to die for a sin. Because the consequences of sin are not arbitrarily imposed punishments. They cannot just be taken away. You know, you always hear people say, well, why doesn't God just forgive people? Why did he have to die for people? I want to answer that question. Because that's a good question. And you're going to get that question. And this essentially is what Christ's death does. Though it's in spiritual terms. Let me go back and say it this way. Um, If you see someone step off the edge of a cliff, you can't just pronounce them. You're forgiven. How many know what's going to happen if someone steps off a cliff? They're going down. And unless something prevents them from plunging into their doom, the deed has been done and the consequences follow quickly. That is the nature of this world. The only chance the cliff jumper has for survival is something absorbs the impact to that fall. And this is essentially what Christ's death does, though in spiritual terms, of course. By dying for us, he absorbs in his own body the impact of our sinfulness. That's why God can forgive us. What we need to understand in Revelation is how God is addressing the sins of humanity. We've already seen the glimpse of it earlier in the book of Exodus when God's people were crying out under the cruel oppression of Egypt. God sends the plagues on the Egyptians. And then we see the Passover, a picture of the Lamb of God. Jesus is actually the Passover. We must remember that the plagues in Egypt made it possible for the people of God to escape from the tyranny of the evil Pharaoh. They were the primary, uh, primarily, uh, primary events that enabled the people to leave their slavery. Thus there is woven into the fabric of judgment a message of hope and salvation for the followers of the Lamb. After the plagues comes the exodus. John is urging his flock not to lose heart because their time of rescue is near. You know when Jesus said all these bad things are going to happen in the world? What, what was his message in Luke 21? Lift up your head. Why? Your redemption is drawing near. As God's judgment is drawing near to humanity, the child of God's redemption is drawing near. It's happening at the same moment. How many think this is kind of neat? You know, 
And then I was reading Eugene Peterson. He says something very fascinating. He says this, you know, so often we think that the Egyptians, because, you know, God visited them on these plagues because they were extraordinary evil people. He said, that's not the reason why. You know what they were doing? They were actually preventing Israel from worshiping God. Because wasn't that what Moses was told to do? Go and get my people out and bring them to this mountain that they might worship me. And you know what did Moses keeps saying to Pharaoh? Let my people go. That the God of the Israel, you know, the God of the Israelites wants his people to go worship him. He says, I don't know that God. Isn't that what the world is saying today? I don't know your God. And they're trying to impede the worship of God's people. Let me tell you something. There's a judgment that comes to that. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Exodus. And then you have the image itself of, uh, of judgment. And we've already looked at it. And this says this, and I'm going to close. I just have a story. I'm going to just say this comment, and I'll close with the story. The treading of the grapes. Isn't that interesting? We've already read these verses. They're all being thrown into the great, great winepress of God's wrath, and they're trampled in the winepress, and all of a sudden it says the blood. Now it's not even grape juice. It's blood flowing out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stata. Well, that's a long way. 1,600 stata is the equivalent of 180 miles or almost 300 kilometers. Now, you know, some people will interpret this and say, well, this is, you know, the Battle of Armageddon. This was going to flow there in that day. But I'm going to just say this. I think what he's really saying is this is almost the breadth of the length of the land at the time that John wrote. In other words, what he's saying is the judgment is going to be to the full extent. There's nobody going to be excluded from this judgment. I don't think he's giving a literal rendering here. I think he's giving an image in our mind how extensive this judgment is going to really be. There's going to be nobody excluded from this judgment. And I want to close with the story. You know, we live in a place in our world right now that when the pioneers first came here, no automobiles, they were riding horses, there would be a lot of grass. This wasn't a desert area. This was a grassy area. This was the Great Plains. And every once in a while, a lightning would strike or something, and a fire would start, and there would be these great grass fires. How many know that's true? And even the fastest horse in the world couldn't outrun a grass fire. They were so dangerous. And the pioneer, when they saw this grass fire coming toward them, they only had one option. And you know what it was to do? It was to create a fire right where they were. And they would let this fire you know, burn around them, and then they would step into where the area was burnt. And so the greater grass fire coming at them would keep coming and keep coming until it came to where the area was burnt, and it would go around them. The only way to be saved from judgment is to have already experienced judgment. That's the only way to be saved. And here's the good news. Jesus Christ came and experienced judgment for us. And when you and I receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, you know what we're doing? We're actually stepping into that place where the fire has already been burnt. Judgment for our sin has already been addressed. And the fire of God's wrath is going to go right around us. Is that amazing? It is amazing. Let's stand this morning. A little heavy topic this morning. One that we don't talk about all the time. But I'll tell you something, if this will get into our hearts and minds, if this seed will go into our heart and mind, and we say to ourselves, you know what? We are all moving to the day of God's great harvest. 
And every last person on this planet is moving to that great harvest day. Jesus says, though, what? The harvest is plentiful. What's the problem? Workers are few. He says, pray. Pray that there will be workers in the harvest field. You and I, if we were living in an agrarian society and this was harvest time, we would do everything in our power to get that harvest off. Because we know that if we don't get this harvest off, when winter comes, we will be battling starvation. I'll tell you something. You get really motivated to get the harvest off. If you know you don't pull it off in time and it, it is destroyed because it's overripe and falls and is destroyed. Can you imagine the grief that months later you're starving when you could have been laboring to get the harvest off? That's the imagery that God is giving us today. That there's an amazing harvest out there. Two things that come to my mind from this message. One, I need to make sure that I've addressed the sin issue. That I've stepped into that once burnt place. I've come to the cross. I've dealt with my sins. Step one. But The second part of it for the rest of us is, what am I doing about the harvest? Because if I'm just living as if it's about my life here and now, and I have no vision of what God has a vision for, don't you think I'm a little out of step with where the Spirit of God is? How many see that? How many can see God's concerned about this great harvest field? And that we should be living in this moment of harvest to harvest like never before. You know, I just think of my own life. I go, I wonder how many more sermons I get to preach. I wonder how many more lives I get to influence. I'm saying to myself, every time I do this, I want to have a greater impact than ever before. That's how my mind is working. I feel like there's a limitation to how much time we all have in this room. There should be a greater sense of urgency. Lord, help us to be more effective in winning our neighbors and people around us. And if we're not burdened about them, God, put a burden in my heart. Pray, God, help me. But just every head bowed this morning as we close in prayer. How many here say, you know what, Pastor? You know what? This is really awakening something inside of me. The Spirit of God is speaking to me. And I realize I have never given my life to Christ. And I don't want to stand before the great anger of God for sin in my life. I want to surrender my life right now to Christ and allow His grace to forgive me my sins and that I've already been judged for sin right now because of what Christ has done. I'm entering into that first judgment so I won't have to be judged at the end. Maybe that's you this morning. I want to give you that opportunity. Just raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray with me? Anybody here this morning? Spirit of God is speaking to you. Okay? All right? Second question. How many here say, you know what? I need a deeper sense of urgency over the harvest field. Just raise your hand. I need a deeper sense of urgency over the harvest field. I have my hand up. I want a deeper sense of it. You know, I want to begin to be harvesting. I want to be working. When you're harvesting, and some of you have done this, it's long days to get that harvest off. Lord, I pray today, help us. Help us get a deep sense of what is about to happen. And that we're moving towards the day of the final judgment. Lord, help us not to be indifferent to the plight of people around us. But help us communicate this wonderful gospel, this good news, that they can be saved. That they can step into the circle with us 
where the fire has already been burned and we can be spared from eternal judgment. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.